0: Interesting conversation on the way to church today. Sometimes we do. Sometimes it's not so cozy in the car on the way to church, uh, right, families? But sometimes we have good conversations. Today there was a song uh, on the radio about heaven. And so uh, I said to uh, my boys, it was just my boys and I on the way here coming a little bit early, I said, I was talking about Yosemite. You know, I think of heaven, I think about Yosemite. And I said, you know, what will Yosemite or a place uh, like Yosemite be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And I liked what my son Michael said. He said, well, the only thing that will really be different is the Awani will be bigger. <laughs> and, 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 and you won't have to be rich to stay there. Everybody will be able to stay at the Awani uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. That was a good, that was a good, uh, good response uh, to that. Well, one of my heroes, those of you that know me, uh, one of my heroes is a guy named Jonathan Edwards. And he was uh, a pastor uh, for most of his uh, life, most of his ministry. He was uh, very briefly a, uh, a missionary on the frontier, sharing the gospel with Indians uh, in colonial America. And then at the very end of his life, he died at 54, He was called to be the president at Princeton. And as he got there, smallpox is going all over the place. And so they knew the risks, but he chose to take the smallpox inoculation, hoping to not get smallpox. And the inoculation killed him, just as he arrived um, there at Princeton. But one of the things that I love, and one of the reasons that Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes, is because uh, his life displays... Christ displays the gospel in certain periods of his life, certain things that he does, just just show forth the gospel. And I want to tell you about one of those, give you a glimpse of one of those situations in his life. It starts off kind of bad, so you've got to kind of hang in there. But he's been shepherding this church in Northampton, Massachusetts, for, for, for quite some time. But the whole time he's doing it, he's doing it in the shadow of his grandfather, The Reverend Solomon Stoddard, this guy who's just loved and just an awesome guy. And Edwards had uh, some different views than uh, his grandfather, and he kind of got into trouble with his congregation. And he got to the point to where basically his congregation no longer viewed him as their shepherd. They kind of moved away from him, don't really like him anymore, and he's done a variety of things that I won't go into to distance himself from, from his flock. And the final thing, the final straw that broke the proverbial camel's back was he had a different view of the Lord's Supper than his grandfather and as had been practiced in the church for many years. His grandfather's view as far as who can partake of the Lord's Supper is very similar to what we do here at Cornerstone. Uh, Solomon Stoddard believed you needed to be baptized and you needed to be a Christian, someone who was repenting, and then you are welcome to come to the Lord's table. But Edwards uh, had a different view. Uh, I don't agree with his view, but he believed in his view so strongly that he stopped having the Lord's supper at church. And about a year goes by, no celebration of the Lord's the Lord's table because of this disagreement between him and the congregation. So they get to the final point, have a bunch of meetings, and they're basically ready to fire the guy. World-renowned theologian, this strong church that's been growing, and so they finally get to the congregational vote whether we're going to fire him or not. In those days, only men voted in a a church meeting, only white men voted in a church meeting. There were 230 white men, heads of household uh, in that church. And guess how many people voted for him to stay? <laughs> Twenty-three. So he got about ten percent to stay. So he's gone. He's fired. Next day, or next Sunday, he preaches his farewell sermon. And I'm getting to the point where I'm gonna show you why I like him. You're thinking, why do you like this guy? <laughs> he's got this strange view of the Lord's Supper. He's his people don't like him. And uh, I, I'm not with him on the Lord's Supper thing, and the things that went before that weren't, weren't so good either, but I, I want you to hear how he responded. So he preaches this farewell sermon, and the leaders of the church hadn't thought uh, ahead very far. And so he preaches his farewell sermon, and the next week they're like, okay, we, we got to get someone to preach next week. And how many people do you think want to follow Jonathan Edwards in his church in preaching? And they can't find anybody to come. Ninety percent of the church fires him. People all around the world in that day and even today are reading his writings. Not a, not a pulpit that you're likely to fill. So they can't find anyone to preach for him. So his family is poor. He's got this large family. He's trying to figure out where we're going to go. They want him out of the parsonage. He's preached his last sermon. They come to him the next few days and say, um, Would you mind preaching this week? We just fired you. We want you out of the parsonage so we can get somebody else in there, but would you mind preaching? Would you guys do that here? (laughs) This happened. And And he says yes. And the same thing happens the next week. They're scrambling, trying to find someone, another minister from a local town to come. Nobody will come. And so he preaches the next week. And he preaches for about three weeks or so. And this time he's he's scrambling. He's trying to figure out where to go, what he's going to do. And he writes a letter to his uh, publisher in Boston because this kind of thing was covered in the press in those days. And he didn't think it was being covered very well. And I'm not going to tell you about the letter. Uh, the, The bulk of the letter was about how things needed to change in the press. But we get a picture of his heart okay, in this letter that he writes to his publisher in Boston. He says, Reverend and honored sir, the committee for supplying the pulpit have got me to preach three Sabbaths since I preached my farewell sermon. But it is with great reluctance they from week to week do their utmost to get to the pulpit, to get the pulpit otherwise supplied. They have taken much pains to get the neighboring ministers to take their turns to preach here, but meet with difficulty. They don't know who to get. I desire you will still remember in your prayers your most obliged friend and servant, Jonathan Edwards. So the part, the reason I'm telling uh, you all this story is Jonathan Edwards was a man who displayed the gospel and displayed Christ in loving his his adversaries, his enemies. They wanted him God. But Edwards realized that he was not really working for his congregation, but he was working for the Lord Jesus Christ, and so instead of, staying, instead of uh, saying what most of us would have liked to have said something to a congregation that fires you, wants you out of there quickly, and then says, by the way, we can't find anyone else. Would you come back? We want to we wanna throw that congregation under the bus uh, in the flesh. But Edwards doesn't do that. Uh, and not only does he not do that, he wants to give them a good seat on the bus. He, he's willing to stand and serve them and love them. And that's really the theme Of today's sermon, uh, Loving Our Enemies. comes out of the passage we're going to look at in a moment that Bud uh, has read, and it's a theme that I've preached on, I think, the last time that I preached here, but it's in this text again in Exodus. And so the Lord, I think, has this message for us again, similar message to what I preached last time. His will for us is to love our enemies and our adversaries. I think he has more to say to us about that. Let's pray uh, once again, and then we'll get into this passage uh, from Exodus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you. I thank you, as Bud did, for the word of God, for uh, your revealed will for our lives. Lord, some of the things in your word are, are really clear and easy to understand, easy to say, that we're to love our enemies, our adversaries, very difficult to do. And so I ask, as we look at your word today, that the power of the Holy Spirit would change us, would awaken us, and would give us the strength uh, to do uh, something similar uh, in, in, the, in the regard of loving those who are against us, so that you might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Exodus 23, if you're not there, go ahead and turn there. And I'm going to look uh, at just two verses. We're going to look at just two verses in this section of Scripture that Bud read. Um, the section dealing with enemies. Verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Now in this section, we have a variety of, of things being said about justice, about mercy, about uh, how things are to go in the courts. But in the middle of that, we have verses 4 and 5. Let me read them again. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off be sure to take it back to him if you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load do not leave it there be sure you help him with it so pretty simple couple verses here not a whole lot to say but let me let me say a few things comments on verses 4 and 5 in verse 4 the situation is that there's no one else involved. There's, there's this person. The case scenario is you're there. You're, you're a believing Israelite, ancient believing Israelite. You're there, and you see this neighbor, adversarial person, their donkey or their ox, wandering off. Uh, someone you don't like. Someone that maybe has been gossiping about you or whatever, and you see their uh, donkey wandering off. And uh, our natural response is is is, is was yes, <laughs> go. Maybe he'll maybe he'll travel to that family over there that really needs a donkey. They'll be able to claim him. Uh, go, go quickly. Um, I didn't cause the donkey to go away. Uh, I I don't really have any obligation to 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 do anything with this donkey. And so just let this thing go. In fact, this is probably the providential hand of God that this donkey is wandering away and we should just let the donkey go. That's our natural response. And so the word of God is is screaming here to go and get the donkey. Um, there, there's no deliberation called for. There's no prayer. Uh, th- this is... To be applied, lots of different animals. It's mentioned ox or donkey. It doesn't matter. The issue here is that you, as a person of God, uh, are, are called to. We're called to love our enemies, to 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 just go and to to act to tangibly show our love for our enemy by going, and getting this donkey, and bringing it back. We have basically a similar situation in verse five. Uh, here. The, 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 the person who you have this adversarial relationship with, this enemy, uh, is with his donkey. Uh, it's someone that hates you. And this donkey has fallen down under its load. So this person who hates you, his, his load is too heavy on his donkey, and you are to go and help him. And you are to bring that back. And uh, this, is, this is what we are called to do. This is what an ancient Israelite was called to do, and we can contextualize this for today for us, that we are called to do similar things. And we can legitimately contextualize this because the New Testament not only repeats this kind of truth, but goes beyond that. And we're going to look at it in a minute. But I think one of the takeaways we want to take away from Exodus 23, from these couple of verses, is that God is looking for us to tangibly act quickly. When we see something like this playing out, uh, it, wh- wh- however it may be playing out, you know, uh, in, our, in our neighborhood, maybe it's the neighbor who uh, hates you, is struggling to bring his trash cans to the street or whatever. Uh, the, the, the spirit of this text would be, we are not to delay. We are to go right away and help that person uh, get their trash cans there. It's calling for tangible action. This is important for us uh, to do. And one of the people that has helped me a lot uh, in life, in his writing, and helps in this particular area is C.S. Lewis. He talks about this, about how we are called to love those that we don't really like and those who are our enemies. So take a look at what, what he says on this subject. Now, he's not talking about this passage, but he's talking about this subject. He says, though natural likings should normally be encouraged. That is, natural liking. Natural liking people. Though natural likings should, be, should normally be encouraged, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. Act as if you did. Go and do it. This is the first step. This is what this passage is saying. Go and do it. Go get the donkey now. Act as if you did. So we might push back, some of us, to this and say, well, if my heart's not really in this, if I'm not really genuine, then I probably shouldn't go help my neighbor with the trash cans. I shouldn't go after the donkey. I need to get my heart right. Some of us might think that way. We shouldn't shouldn't just go and do something like this. Lewis has, has thought this through, I think, rightly. He says, uh, he says this. As soon as we do this, as soon as we act, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. And so we train ourselves to have that sincere heart. We train ourselves to actually want to help our enemy. We begin by just doing it. And As we do it, the Lord will help our hearts and our minds to come along and to change. And we will find ourselves, at the very least, disliking this adversarial uh, relationship, disliking this person less. Lewis goes on. He says, whenever we do good to another self, another person, Just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring its own happiness, as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least to dislike it less. So whenever we do good to another, we are going to learn to desire this happiness that they would have just as we have for ourselves. We'll learn to love this a little more. Finally, he says, the worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking in the beginning. So, did you track with that? Track with that? You with me? With C.S. Lewis here, a little bit hard to maybe follow some of uh, his writing. But what you know, as we're young in the Lord, uh, we, we just want to love the people that, that, that we like. But as we mature in Christ, as we understand that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and this is at the very heart of the gospel, and we are called to display that gospel and do crazy things, like people who want to fire us and get us out of town to love them and to, to preach to them and to serve them. We, we, we learn that God wants us to do crazy things like that uh, naturally. And, and as we do that, as we grow uh, in, in, in sanctification, uh, we're going to realize uh, that, uh, that, that, that it is enjoyable to like these people, even though they might think of us as our enemies. That it's freeing to, to love them, to serve them. And we can even grow uh, to like them in some ways. So this passage is calling us uh, to show tangible action. Lewis is helping us think through about why we would do that just in a moment, just to respond. So, you know, I want to ask you uh, this morning, uh, whose donkey you need to go after? Uh, We've all got um, friends, family members, um, coworkers, uh, people at school. We've got these various relationship networks and all of us, uh, as we look back over our lives, whether we're young or old, we have various people who end up on the other side of the fence, as it were. They end up being our enemies. They end up being adversaries of us for some reason, whether it's because of our own doing or, or, or not. And the Lord is calling us to go after their donkey, as it were, to show love to them. And I just want you to be thinking and praying even now about who that might be uh, in your in your own life, in your family, in your network of relationships. Well, I want to transition now to uh, the New Testament. So let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5. And I went here last time I preached to, to the Sermon on the Mount. But let's, uh, let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5 at the very end of the chapter, beginning at verse 43. Matthew 5. In verse 43, Jesus says this in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let me pause right there for a moment. So Jesus is saying here, you're you're familiar with this, love your neighbor, but you uh, have also heard that it was said to hate your enemy. This, of course is not from scripture, but this is from first century culture. This idea was there in his listeners to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. So Jesus corrects this, this idea of hating your enemy in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So out of verse 44, we see uh, really two things. One of them we've already seen in Exodus, that God is looking for us to love our enemies in a tangible way. in a a concrete way, with action, to go after the donkey. The Lord is is mentioning this here. This is a way we are to love our enemies, but he also mentions that we are to pray for them. Uh, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. And then look at verse 45. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Verse 45 is kind of, uh, kind of a doozy here. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, love your enemies, pray for them, pray for those who would persecute you, so that, verse 45, I'm reading from the NIB, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Does that make us tremble a little bit here? Are you with me? You guys are, am I, am I losing you? Am I losing you? You're with me. Um, this sounds like this is essential to being in God's family, that we love our enemies and pray for them. Do you see that in this text here? Um, if you want to be sons of your Father in heaven, you need to pray for those who persecute you, and you need to love your enemies. You need to go after the donkey, in the, in the words of Exodus 23. And so there's a lot of passages like this in Scripture that make it sound like if you don't do this, you're, you're, you're out. And yet, there's other passages of Scripture that make it really clear that we're saved by faith. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. It's not of works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift from God. So how do we put these things together? I don't want to minimize at all what verse 45 is saying. What verse 45 is saying is that if you have genuinely been justified by faith, you have been born again, as, as Adam talked about earlier, you have, been, you have repented of your sins, and you have trusted in the finished work of Christ. You are a professing believer. If you have done that, you are going to show yourself to have been adopted into a different kind of family, the kind of family that as we grow and mature, that we don't have enemies. That we don't have enemies. Adversaries, We do, in the sense, from their perspective toward us, but in our hearts toward them, we don't. We pray for them. We go after their donkey. We help them with their trash down there. We, whatever it is, we make the phone call. This is what people in the family of God do. We don't do it perfectly. We don't do it always. But we do it. We love them tangibly. The people who have made us angry, who have insulted us, who have insulted our children. We show love to them tangibly and we pray for them. Jesus not only preached this, but he lived this. The pinnacle of history, the pinnacle of the Bible is the crucifixion. Jesus' death and resurrection. In Luke chapter 23, uh, on the screen here, Jesus is being crucified. Let's look at it. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, here's why I put this text up here. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus is praying for his enemies as they kill him, as they take him out, the Lamb of God, the sinless one. He's praying for them as they take him out. He's modeling for us what it looks like to be a son of God, to be a son of the Messiah, the Savior, and to follow in his ways and, and, and to live out the gospel. We do crazy things like love and preach to the people that just fired us, who don't like me. John Stott uh, writes this, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, what pride, what prejudice or sloth could justify the silencing of ours? God is calling us to pray for those people that we don't like in our lives. He wants them to be changed. but He also wants us to be changed. He wants us to show that we are sons of God by characteristically, normally, increasingly loving those who oppose us, who irritate us, who are against us. Bonhoeffer uh, puts it this way. He says, this is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, stand by his side, and plead for him. Plead for him to God. For someone who was in prison and had vicious and wicked enemies all around him, uh, Bonhoeffer, another one of my heroes, uh, is another one whose life displays the gospel and speaks to me. I think it's important that we have heroes from across the centuries because people uh, endure all sorts of different things that we're never going to experience. And we get to see who they are and see, what, see who Christ is through them as we, as we get to know them. That's why, with all of his faults, um, Jonathan Edwards is one of my heroes. That's why Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes. So I don't have a whole lot more to say this morning. I'm praying that God is at work in our hearts I'm praying that some of us have specific people in our minds that we need to begin to pray for, that we need to, when opportunity arises, go and uh, get their donkey. Um, I don't want to understate how challenging this is. When people are mean and vicious and wicked, uh, we don't like them. We don't like what they're doing. And yet we're called to love them. Close with these words from commentator named Lenski. He says, uh, I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. I cannot like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again. But I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love them all, see what is wrong with them, Desire and work to do them only good, most of all, to free them from their vicious ways. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we need your help to love our enemies. We need your help to have hearts that are willing to pray for them, people who've been against us, people who are not for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to pray rightly. That our lives and hearts would display the gospel of Jesus. We're thankful that Christ loved us while we're sinners, while we're enemies, while we were far off. He loved us. Help us to display that in our hearts and in our actions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.